Kids on the next episode of the Two Coffins to Speak podcast. What up, guys? How's everybody doing? So this is one that we are excited for, and we're like broken records because the last one we were like, we're so fucking excited to talk about this topic. But legit, this is... This is a thing, an event, a person who is near and dear to us, and they don't know how much they mean to us. I'm obsessed with him. (laughs) I've probably had a crush on him, I don't know, 10 plus years already. Yeah. Like, so I watched Wishmaster the other day. And Which I confused for Page Master, and I was like, Kevin, why are you watching that? And then I was like, wait a second, where's Macaulay Culkin? And I was so lost, guys. I was so confused. And so, like, in between watching Wishmaster the other day and prepping for this episode, I thought to myself, I was like, oh, shit. Like, if I had three wishes and I knew that at the end the third wish would, like, end mankind, I would blow all three wishes on just having this person hang out with me and just getting a chance to just hug him. Like... I want to know what a hug feels like from this individual and just embrace it like a nice long like 38 second hug. I just I, <laughs> I think honestly one of my dreams would be to just hang out with him. Yeah. Sit in a room with him, talk with him and just listen to him and I don't know, but honestly, I would just probably sit there and just be like uh Yeah. And just zone out. Dude, I'd try to steal probably, shit from his house. Probably I would so look try. like an idiot. All right, you know so, what? I don't think you'd have to steal shit from his house because no, he'd probably I feel like give, he'd it, give to it to you. Yeah. He would give it to you. In like the sweetest way, he'd be like, here you go, you can have my automaton. <laughs> my All right. So I don't know if anyone has been able to guess it. You probably haven't, because that'd be freaking weird if you already knew. But who are we talking about today? Our Lord and Savior, Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> <laughs> so Del Toro's, um, Del Toro's like God. portfolio of films and art and everything is it's huge. It's massive. Um, we have like an entire shelf of our bookshelf just dedicated to this guy's books that he found the time to write in between all of the films that he makes. Mm-hmm. And so for this episode, we narrowed it down. Um, and spoiler alert, we'll do other Del Toro episodes because there's no way we can't talk about his other films. No. Um, but so for this episode, our focus is Del Toro's work and his film set in the Spanish Civil War. Um, and the two films that, that are set, the two big films he has that are set in that time period are first The Devil's Backbone and then, of course, Pan's Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot to say <laughs> about both of these movies. I think like. Del Toro's work, to me, like, we, we just finished up watching Pan's Labyrinth, and when the, the movie started, I've seen that movie, goddamn, like, at least eight times in the past two years, and I still get goosebumps. Like, that film starts, and I am in love. I will say, anytime I rewatch any of his movies, I notice something new every single time. Yeah. Especially since we, like Kevin said, we just finished up watching this. We had our notebooks out. You know, we've been doing our research. And I'm sitting there taking notes. And especially on some of the symbolism that he has in these movies. And I'm just like, didn't notice that before. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> His set design, the character outfits. like he, he pours himself into these movies, guys. He's not doing it just to make money or anything. He wants to tell 
a story and he wants to tell it well he wants mm-hmm. you to feel the movie like the set designs he does the color palettes he yeah. chooses the architecture he chooses it's intoxicating like it's you get lost yeah. in it you get lost in it yeah all right yeah so devil's backbone and pen's labyrinth are a little earlier on in his career um if you haven't seen his first film chronos it's totally worth a watch I would say that it didn't age great. (laughs) I fucking love Ron Perlman. And so I'll watch most things that Ron Perlman are in. But even that one, it... it... I still liked it. Yeah. Yeah. I still like it. I will say I have not seen Kronos in a few years. um, But I do remember enjoying it. It's just a much, much slower paced Mm -hmm. movie. Um, So it takes a while to get into it. I'd say watch Kronos after you've watched a decent amount of Del Toro's work. Because if you've watched a decent amount of his work and you've fallen in love with him the way we have, and then you go back and you watch Kronos, it's almost like seeing where it all started. It's like seeing some of those tropes and those motifs that he uses in so many of his films. And like when he first tried them without a lot of experience, with a whole hell of no budget, um, seeing that happen in Kronos is fantastic. Um, So you get Kronos... You get Mimic, and then after Mimic is when you get Devil's Backbone. Um, and then after Devil's Backbone, you get Blade Two, and then after Blade Two, you get Pan's Labyrinth. Um, so that's kind of the order of, of like Del Toro's kind of progress as a director. We're really hyper-focusing a little bit early on. I have a shit ton to delve into in terms of the history that, like, sets these two films is there anything you want to talk about before we dive into kind of what the background of these two films are being the spanish civil war and i know we have a lot like we have a lot to talk about in each of these movies um i just kind of want to touch on del toro a little bit Mm -hmm. prior to going into these two pieces um currently right now he's 55 years old he Mm -hmm. is not old at all years young years young Mm -hmm. years young correct um He's a Mexican filmmaker, he's an author, he's an actor, he was a formal special effects makeup artist, he's done a bunch. He definitely obsesses into his work, and he wants to know every aspect of it, which I think makes him an amazing director. He doesn't just, you know, want to stay behind the camera telling people what to do. He wants to know the insides and outs of everything which gives him that special eye that he has a lot of people say you know working with him he'll make you do things over and over again he'll change things last minute but i think it's what makes his stuff so good yeah yeah Um, and that's not to say that other directors don't do similar things but i think i don't know like so the other director that comes to mind at least in the horror genre and there's probably quite a few but there's two that come to mind that I think are, are much like Del Toro. One is Jordan Peele. Um, and, and by that I mean, like, you can see when Jordan Peele has had a hand in a movie, whether he's directed it or whether he's produced it, there's always something about it that, like, it's just His style. him, right? Yeah. Um, and Del Toro, especially more recently, he, like, is producing, executive producing a bunch of things, and you don't even need to know that he was a producer, executive producer, or director. You watch a movie and you're like, this is a Del Toro flick because I can tell from this style. Yeah. The other one who comes to mind, actually, at least for me, 
is uh, Sam Raimi. Um, <laughs> Sam Raimi. I know there's something about his movies that to me I can watch and I'm like, that's a Raimi film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, with Del Toro, guys, he his work always has connections to fairy tales, horror, um, you know, that kind of gothic romancy feel. Mm-hmm. He adores, this man adores symbolism. Um, I'll mention it in later podcasts when we bring it up, but there's a few books that I've purchased uh, based off of the movies that he's done. And when you read into these books, some of the symbolism this guy chooses to put in there is insane because as you're watching the movie, you get the feeling of it, but you don't realize that your brain is processing it that what well, processing it that way. Yeah, he does that for you, mm-hmm. and he puts you in that feeling with all this symbolism and everything he chooses, which yet again makes it the experience that it is. And mm-hmm. it's just I don't know. I love him. I'm a yeah. huge fan. <laughs> huge fan. Um, his love of monsters definitely runs deep. Mm-hmm. You know, he states when he was a kid, it's pretty much what saved him. Um, you know, yeah. saved him from kind of like the religion that he was in and everything. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk yeah. when we get into Devil's Backbone yeah. more so than Penn's Labyrinth. But God, like Catholicism haunts this man and it haunts yeah. these films. Um, and like, when we get to Pan's Labyrinth, we'll talk a bit about the way that like Del Toro uses monsters as a stand in for almost like an overt paganism um and we'll talk about that when we get into pan's labyrinth a bit yeah and he definitely he states multiple times you know at the end of the day monsters are his family you know they're his comfort they're his everything they're his guidance the guy has two houses dedicated to his collection (laughs) and everything monster and things that he's loved since he was a child and it's insane if you've never checked out one of his houses which is called bleak house Mm -hmm. do a quick google search you will not be disappointed it is amazing the things that this man has in his house i'm so jealous of the fact that when you walk in there's a giant samael just sitting there a hellhound dog and i want one for our house Mm -hmm. i just want it i'll move it into any room i I don't even care if we have to rotate it and put a santa hat on it around the holidays i'm totally down we have to set up like a little kid's room and it's just samuel in the corner it's it's fine it's totally fine but yeah those are some of the points i just wanted to mention there's tons i could say but those are just a few i'll touch on before we dive into these movies what um question for you yeah what movie like made you fall in love with del toro so not necessarily like the first del toro movie you watch but like what was the movie that that just kind of captured you so i didn't know it was him and i'm not gonna mm-hmm. say it's this one but i didn't know it was him but i loved hellboy yeah i grew up with hellboy and it was one of my favorites and it wasn't until i started watching pan's labyrinth and falling in love with pan's labyrinth and just realizing holy shit this is the same guy Mm -hmm. so it's crazy to think that hellboy which is like a comic movie i was obsessed with as a kid is also the same guy who's doing these beautiful fairy tale gothic movies that i'm obsessed with as an adult yeah so Probably Hellboy without yeah. knowing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's one of those, yeah. Same, same. I yeah. think Hellboy became, 
and more and more people have been talking about this in the midst of the pandemic of like what is your comfort media like what mm-hmm. are what is the thing you can put on and just feel better about because it's on like we fall asleep almost every goddamn night to bob's burgers because it's one of the most wholesome <laughs> damn shows ever um and and hellboy for like for me and my brother growing up hellboy was one of those like comfort movies if mm-hmm. it was on on tv you watched it all and, the time yeah. yeah and you didn't it, it was just no matter how often you'd seen it it was still enjoyable yeah and it, it was totally different from like superhero movies or anything like that like i and wanted then hellboy 2 yeah and you're like golden army yeah i just Ugh. I I love I love those movies I'll constantly put them on in the background when I'm painting Mm -hmm. or if they're on Netflix or whatever I'm throwing those on all the time Mm -hmm. like they're just they're great they're great I never get sick of them yeah 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 awesome um so one of the things I'll say is once this episode is out and about, please, please, please on Instagram, on social media, send us, if you too are are infatuated head over heels with Del Toro, send us what are the things or what was the movie from Del Toro that just absolutely captured you, that made you fall in love with, with kind of the vision of, of this artist. Did we mention he's adorable? Oh my God. Because he's absolutely adorable. He's so squishy. I, wanna, I just want to give him a big him. hug. I want to hug him so That's much. It. Like, I imagine that when you hug him, he just gives you this good belly laugh. <laughs> he's goofy. I yeah. love him. He's just great. Okay. I'm going to, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> I'm done now. <laughs> All right. Uh, he's probably, that, imagine if he heard this. He'd be like, these creepy ass. Oh my God. <laughs> imagine if he hears this and he's like, I'll give you guys a hug. That's cool. Like, just stop being weird about it. <laughs> You think he'd throw in the Samael statue as well? <sighs> I don't know. I don't think so. I don't know. Um, here's to hoping. <laughs> here's to hoping. At Del Toro. At real Del Toro. <laughs> All right. So both oh, of them. Sorry. Sorry. Yes. I'm so yes. Sorry. Fun fact. I did a drawing a few years ago of some of the fairies mm-hmm. from uh, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Yeah. It was so shittily done. And Del Toro at the time, at the time, he had an Instagram. He liked it. Mm-hmm. I freaked yeah. the fuck out. Del Toro liked one of my Instagram posts, and I broke down, cried, and was so happy. And then mm-hmm. he ended up deleting his Instagram like two weeks later, and I was like, everybody's <laughs> gonna think I'm a fake. All right, on to the devil's backbone. Now, so before we get into that, I wanted to talk about um, the event that. The event that encompasses both of these films, and even though um, Pan's Labyrinth takes place after the official end of the Spanish Civil War, uh, Devil's Backbone takes place during the war itself, and yet the war and the culture around the war is such an important part of the plot of these two films. It's also an important part of like what makes each character in these films so immediately sympathetic or unsympathetic. So the Spanish Civil War, um, I'll, I'll like full disclosure, this is one of my favorite things to study in history. Um, partially because like if you study critical history, if you've read a people's history of the United States, if you look into history from the ground up, if you really start to analyze those power structures, and especially when you look at 
empire in international affairs, it's so easy to just become disheartened, to just become disenchanted and say, like, the world is a garbage fire and let it all burn. The Spanish Civil War is one of those few events in history that you just want to hold on to and you want to hope that it'll come out right. Like, you want to believe that what is good and right and just on this side of this civil war will win. And if you can take a guess, it doesn't. But still, what this war proved was what was capable in the fight against fascism. So it's worth noting, Spain is and was and is a super um, regional country. So Spain's regions of Catalonia, um, the Basque area, these are regions that they really have their own culture. And similar to when you look at the United States, right, and you say to yourself, like, what it means to be and um, uh, what it means to be an American is very different if you're from the South than if you're from New England, like we talked about last episode, or if you're from like the Rust Belt, the Sun Belt, the Bible Belt, all these belts, lots of belts in America. It's very different cultures based on these regionalisms. And Spain is very similar. One of the things, though, that kind of is a forced unifier has been the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church and the monarchy, the king, in Spain have held on to really tight control for a while. That was until King Alfonso in Spain is kind of just like, he's a doofus. Um, there's a lot of monarchies that are filled with doofuses. And this is one of those prime examples where you get a doofus on the throne at the worst slash best possible time. That leads to a total decline in the monarchy. So, February 16th of 1936, there's an election across Spain. And Spain is a parliamentary monarchy, um, not unlike when you think of England in certain ways, but with a very, very weak parliament at the time. Six, uh, February 16th, 1936, the Popular Front, which is this united front of center-left and leftist parties wins a majority in the Cortes, and the Cortes is like their parliament. Um, and that popular front unity government pushes forward a new constitution that creates the second Spanish Republic. Now, these are some wild and crazy times. Some of the things that the second Spanish Republic put forward as, as newly legal in Spain. You ready? Women could be educated. Women could serve as politicians. Contraception was spoken about. Uh, they were going to, and this is actually still radical, especially if you live in the United States, uh, they were going to tax the Catholic Church. Clutch your pearls. Oh my God, the church was going to have to pay some money. Um, other things were going to be like ending corporal punishment in schools so that nuns couldn't hit kids. <laughs> they were going to support farmers. 
So these are like what are generally considered liberal reforms, even though you have a, a center left and left wing of, of the party taking control. Those uh, like the, the, the communists, the kind of more radical socialists and even an anarchist wing that's part of parliament in that initial um, birth of the Second Spanish Republic, they're not even pushing that far yet. They're just looking for like basic human rights, especially around gender. Um, in March of 1936, uh, the Spanish fascist party known as the Falange, which was led by José Antonio Primo de Rivera, attempt to assassinate one of the socialist leaders of the new Cortes. Um, the the Falange is, is a fascist party as fascist parties were creeping up across Europe. So in the same vein as... Mussolini's brown shirts in the same vein of the Nazis in Germany uh, and fascists in Austria. The Falange is that same kind of like hyper-nationalist, hyper-chauvinist, um, this like national romanticized myth of the past, but also believes that the way to power in politics is through violence. And so they're going to try and assassinate one of these young socialist leaders. The assassination attempt failed. He was injured, but he wasn't killed. And in response, the Second Spanish Republic's Cortes outlaws the Falange Party, outlaws the fascist party. And so from March to July, the fascists, along with nationalist groups, monarchists who want the king to be back in control, and the Catholic Church all organize a coup. They organize a rebellion. Um, and it was going to start with the soldiers in Morocco. And when I say soldiers, what I really mean is gender generals. These are like the top ranks, the officers, who are outraged that the Second, Se the Second Spanish Republic was encouraging the military to become more egalitarian. Um, and so those officers in July begin, July 17th, begin a coup against the Second Spanish Republic. And it starts in Morocco. The Republic is immediately defended in the streets. And this is what, like, this is my favorite part of this story. Is that what you do not have here is you do not have military against military. What you have is like the bourgeoisie in a country with their military elites rebelling against a republic that essentially just wanted basic human rights. And rather than having that military fight back, it was people in the streets of Madrid and Barcelona who grabbed their rifles, grabbed like the bricks and stones from the grounds, set up barricades using mule carts and other things, and fought back the fascist coup and so you have like barbers and telephone workers who literally left their job they said fuck this i'm gonna go fight some fascists went into the streets and stopped the coup from being successful and so that right there is the start of the spanish civil war and it encompasses what the spanish civil war is in the memory of many people it's really the people defending themselves not necessarily an organized military. And that would also have like a, a real negative effect later on in terms of being able to be successful later on in the war. 
Um, the Spanish Civil War is broken into an obnoxious amount of factions. So we talked about like the fascist factions, right? The Falange, the Catholics, the monarchists, the nationalists, and you have the military elite. But then on the other side of this war, on the Republican side, you have the army that the Republic could muster and put together quickly. But then you also have the POUM. And the POUM are essentially radical socialist and communist forces. And then you have the CNT-FAI. And the CNT-FAI are the anarchist forces, and their stronghold is really Catalonia. So those groups, which, quite frankly, outside of the Civil War, don't get along very well, those groups are all coming together to defend the Republic. There's another group that gets added in and founded in October of 1936, and that's the International Brigades. And the International Brigades is a group of workers, artists, uh, in some cases politicians and activists, from all over the world, who when they saw the start of the Spanish Civil War, who when they had heard about the rise of fascism in Europe, they had heard what Mussolini's parties were doing, they had heard what Hitler's party was doing in Germany. This wasn't even before things became super public, but just knowing what was creeping forward with fascism. You have thousands of people across the world who volunteer to join the international brigades, go to Spain and fight Franco and fight fascism. And in many cases, they put their own citizenship in their native countries at risk to go do this. Um, one of the few countries, and this is just kind of like a pretty unique caveat to this, one of the few countries who their government officially supported the Spanish Republic and sent aid and sent supplies was Mexico. Uh, Mexico sent arms to Spain to help support the Spanish Republic. So you've got all of these groups who are fighting. Most of them are not well-trained. You have a lot of guerrilla warfare, a lot of hit-and-run tactics. Um, and then in April 26 of 1937, Germany had been supporting the fascist side. Hitler's Germany had been sending military aid directly to Franco and the fascists in Spain. So had Italy. Mussolini's Italy was supporting Franco's fascists as well. But it was April 26, 1937, when German planes dropped bombs on the civilian city of Guernica in Spain. And it was a massacre of civilians that it led to a surge in international aid from individuals, not from countries, but from individuals. And of course, that bombing of Guernica is what inspired Pablo Picasso to create the the giant piece that would be his Guernica. It's it's for many people at the time a chance to essentially throw up on the news this is what a fascist future looks like. Allow fascism to grow and this is what we will see. Unfortunately the Republican government, the kind of centrists in the Republican government, they still believe that they can get other countries to support them 
rather than trying to appeal to the workers themselves and appeal to a kind of popular front. Um, and England and France especially are signing agreement after agreement saying they won't get involved in Spain. And ironically, they're even getting like Germany to sign on to these agreements and the Soviet Union to sign on to these agreements, even knowing that they are blatantly breaking these agreements. But England and France are using it as a farce to be able to say like, oh, we signed on, so we can't do anything to, you know, protect innocent people. And this would this would inevitably more than anything lead to the massacre and defeat of the Republican side. It's worth noting. The Soviet Union supported the Spanish Republic through the POUM, so through the communist uh, militia in Spain. However, when Stalin begins to see that he is going to need more resources to fight the Germans, to fight the Nazis himself, he begins to pull out of Spain. He essentially uses Spain as a puppet to see what he can and can't learn from the Nazi military machine. And then when it no longer becomes beneficial to Stalin, he pulls out, leaving the POUM to be massacred. Another story from this war that I want to point to is the story of some of the people who fought in the international brigades. Um, there, is, there is kind of a who's who of intelligentsia who go over to Spain. One of them who, like, catches... All of the popularity for this is Ernest goddamn Hemingway. Um, and I truly believe that people who are obsessed with Hemingway are to literature what dudes who are obsessed with Joe Rogan's podcast are to, like, the internet age. If you're obsessed with Hemingway, you've probably got, like, a little bit of chauvinism and misogyny to work through. Um, but... Hemingway goes over, he kind of goes over more as a PR campaign, but not, nevertheless, Hemingway being in Spain and fighting for the Republican side is a great way to fundraise for the cause. Um, more kind of importantly, you have Paul Robeson, who is the amazing singer and actor, African-American civil rights activist. Um, he goes over to Spain and also George Orwell. And Orwell writes an account of his time in the Spanish Civil War fighting with the militia forces. And what's amazing about Orwell's account is that, you know, Orwell gets misquoted so many goddamn times. People misquote Orwell to try and, like, use him to shoot down any kind of socialist, communist, leftist ideals. It's such bullshit. Like, this guy put his life on the line fighting for these ideals to the point where... He gets shot in the neck and is, like, bleeding out on the battlefield, manages to get it repaired, manages to get it healed, loses his voice for a while. Um, but he, he accounts his time at the Spanish Civil War front with the POUM, with the CNT. He really talks a bunch about, like, looking up to the anarchist forces and what anarchism could be and what anarchism showed him was possible. That stays with Orwell for a very, very long time. And then the last group that I want to talk about is how important women were to the Spanish Civil War. And if you just do, like, a quick Google search of the Spanish Civil War, the images that you're going to come up with are going to be so many badass armed young women and older women 
who are out in the front, who are on the front lines, who are leading these militias. Um, you have La Pasionada, who is a major politician and artist who's kind of leading the Spanish Republic from the communist side. You have Emma Goldman from the Ameri from the United States who's going over to Spain, again, kind of like trying to push support for the cause. So this is just an incredibly hopeful moment with a lot of utopian ideals. What could we be if we defeated fascism? It wasn't necessarily about like whether it was an anarchist future, a socialist future, a communist future, a liberal's future. It was what could we achieve if we defeat fascism not just in person, but as an idea and as an ideology. So that's that's a long-winded way, and actually for me it's a short version of what I would want to talk about, of the setting for both of these films and, and how important the Spanish Civil War was and the fact that Del Toro specifically chose this historical period as his background. Do you have anything you want to throw in there on that? No. That is all your lovely history denseness. Yeah, it's the Spanish Civil. There's so much to it. Um, please, 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 pick up um, pick up Orwell's Homage to Catalonia if you just kind of want a quick read mm. to go through, and if you appreciate a little bit of that like in person kind of perspective. Um, but there's so many, so much great literature there about the Civil War. So with that, I think we should dive into the movie that's actually set in the period of the Civil War, The Devil's Backbone, uh, released November 21st, 2001. Do you want to give us a summary? Sure. You can definitely give us a summary. Let's see. What did I write down? And we just watched this, what, yesterday? Two days yeah. ago? Yeah. Something like that. So the story opens up uh, with a male narrator saying, you know, what is a ghost? And then he goes on to say, a ghost is a tragedy doomed to repeat itself. So there's a young boy. Um, he ends up going to an all-boys orphanage with somebody who is labeled as kind of like his caretaker and everything. Um, unfortunately, the caretaker ends up leaving him behind because unbeknownst to this young boy, whose name is Carlos, um, his father actually passed away. Fighting in the Spanish Civil War, was he? Correct? Yeah, yeah, yes. they call him yeah. a comrade. Yep, so he was fighting in the Spanish Civil War. Um, you know, while he's at this orphanage, he gets a group of friends later on, because in the beginning they end up being bullies to him, but he starts noticing kind of like this presence and this ghost, which they keep referring to as the sigh. The one who sighs. The one who sighs, who starts popping up. Um, unfortunately, he later finds out that it is a kid that went missing at the orphanage and things start to unravel. He figures out what happened to this child and everything. And in the end, this kid ends up saving all of these orphans and a lot of shit goes down, guys. <laughs> mm -hmm. A lot of shit goes down. I mean, that's that's a really rough summary yeah. <laughs> of it all. I, I'm like, should I give away a bunch of spoilers? Because we're just going to talk about it all. But Yeah, I guess we're going to talk about We're going to talk right. through the details. Cool. Again, I have I have a lot, like I have a lot to keep going on in terms of one of my big points that I want to get across uh, and in the way we're going to talk about Del Toro with these two movies is Del Toro's cultural anti-fascism. But I've talked a lot about politics, so I want to I want to give you a chance to delve in there. What do you what some of the first things that come to your mind in this film? 
I mean, definitely the time period he put it in. So it's based in what the 1930s. Yeah. So 1930s. this is this is solidly, you know, probably like 37, 38. Yeah. It's towards the it's it's towards the tail end of the Civil War, and we see that later on in the film when when um, the two people who are kind of in charge of this orphanage, uh, Doctor Casadas and um, oh, what was her name, the the woman Carmen. who was Carmen. Mm-hmm. Car- Ooh, yep. So that's one of those names that Del Toro uses quite often. Um, but uh, Doctor Casadas and and Carmen get word that the nationalist and the fascist forces are in the town nearby. Um, and so they they need to scoop. They need to get the boys, get the orphans, and get the hell out of there. So the, the war plays a major part throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. And one of the main images in this movie is actually in the kind of courtyard of the orphanage. There's a bomb. There's a bomb that's just embedded into the ground. And everybody tells Carlos, you know, it fell, but it never detonated. It Mm -hmm. never went off. And people came by to turn it off. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just sitting there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, rumor has it that it still has a heartbeat. It's still ticking. Yeah. Um, And just honestly, that bomb, I, I feel like it just represents it's hard to explain but just like the orphanage itself like it's it's constantly there to remind them what's going on and it's still this feeling of a ticking time bomb but it's kind of like it's forgotten by everybody else so it's just like it's like the orphanage the orphanage is sitting there Mm -hmm. it's a ticking time bomb Mm -hmm. and it's forgotten by others who have left it and left it behind but you never know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. One day everything could be fine and then it completely changes the next. Yeah. I I was obsessed with this bomb as we were watching the especially on our like this was probably our third time watching the movie after quite a few years. Um I was obsessed with trying to figure this bomb out in terms of like symbolism and meaning and all of that. And so they actually show you the kind of flashback to when the bomb is dropped two or three times in the movie. And the thing that I really wanted to see is when you're in the present in the film and the shots are on the bomb, you see there are ribbons tied to tied to like the tail of the bomb. So the color of those ribbons that are tied to the tail of the bomb are the colors of the Spanish Republican flag. So I was thinking to myself, I was like, oh, like, is the bomb dropped by Republican forces or is the bomb dropped by fascist forces? And I know like for those of you who are listening, most of us probably who are listening in in the United States, you're going to have to separate Republican Spain from Republican Party in the United States because they pretty much believe in opposite fucking things. (laughs) So Republican Spain is women's rights is separation of church and state is uh, pushing for more equality in terms of uh, economics and um, pushing for, you know, resource distribution and things like that. So the ribbons on the bomb are the Republican colors. And I'm like, shit, like, is that a Republican bomb that's dropped on this orphanage? But when you see the like flashback scenes of when the bomb is dropped, there's no ribbons on it. There's nothing. The ribbons also look fairly new compared to the way the bomb looks. The bomb 
it presumably has only been there for like what maybe a month a few months um and the bomb looks like shit it looks rusty and all these things and those ribbons are super vibrant like the colors are still wicked vibrant so that tells me the whether it's the adults or the kids in the orphanage they're the ones who tied those ribbons to that bomb like that orphanage becomes a representation of the second spanish republic of that cause of anti-fascism and of freedom um for me i the thing that came to my mind when i think of the bomb is i i think of the idea of hauntology um, which is this theory from from jacques derrida who talks about how every and i'm like super kind of summarizing this um every human decision is haunted by the possibilities of what could or would have happened if we had made a different decision right so like we kind of and Derrida is a bit dramatic and a bit verbose but he goes over the top and he's really talking about how like we as humans live our lives haunted by what could have been based on the decisions that we made and I saw the bomb as kind of like a permanent representation of that hauntology, especially because we have a ghost story here of all of the decisions that these people in this orphanage have made with just about everyone with the exception of Carlos and your boy Owl, who is flipping adorable. Um, owl being that kid with the glasses and like the teeth and all that. Um, that was an owl. Yeah. That's Galvez. Owl. His nickname's Owl. No. Galvez is one of the kids. Uh-huh. Owl is another kid. Yeah. They're two separate kids. Okay, maybe I'm describing Owl wrong, but Owl is adorable. <laughs> <laughs> the one with, like, the little steampunk glasses. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. That's Galvez. Oh, okay. You got Whatever. it wrong. You weren't paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> um, but with the exception of those younger kids, almost everyone throughout this film is haunted by their past is haunted by their own decisions that they had to some extent within their own control so i want to talk um a bit about if you're up for it um carmen the doctor and jacinto right yes um those are those are our major like adult characters who play themselves out. And I especially wanted to look at Jacinto as everything wrong with like machismo. Everything wrong with what fascism kind of idealizes. And I found this with Del Toro through time. Del Toro will always demonize and I guess demonize is strong because demonize almost makes it sound like they don't deserve it when they do but like del Toro hates a character that is all brute force yeah um so like a male character that's all brute force is almost always going to be some type of villain in a del Toro film and Jacinto totally falls into that he tries to solve everything with violence Mm-hmm. He also he also chooses the villains that he chooses have 
horrible pasts and they choose to act on them differently than the other characters yes because he shows all his other characters have horrible pasts too yes. carlos was straight dropped off and left not even said goodbye to and he's still a sweetheart like yeah he just shows that these are people who decided to take a different path from their tragedy yeah that's what i wanted to talk about was was and i love this about him right when when del toro sets up a villain he doesn't give you a single goddamn redeeming quality like there is nothing that wow. jacinto and when we get to pan's labyrinth there is nothing that captain vidal does that gives you even an ounce of sympathy for that character and yeah. you want you want to like humanize them to some extent but you, there's nothing that they do that gives you that but it's not a caricature. It's not like over the top. Mm-mm. It's those little everyday decisions that they make that are just like, oh, I want to spit on your grave one day. Yeah. He honestly, he always sets up these villain characters as people who, you know, come off put together, come off pristine, come off kind of somewhat. You look at them in the beginning and you're just like, I bet you other people admire this person mm-hmm. but they're just disgusting on the inside they're just yeah. horrible on the inside and i noticed that he always makes them have like set schedules set things that they do constantly yeah mechanized yes mm-hmm. like because it's just it's drilled within them to do them this is what i do every single day and with Chisinto, it was he was obsessed. He was obsessed with that safe. He was obsessed with, you know, figuring out a way to get out of this orphanage that he's been stuck at for yeah. 15 plus years. He doesn't look at it as somewhere where he grew up and, you know, he could have good memories mm-hmm. or anything like that. No, mm-hmm. he just looks at it as this hellhole. He wants to buy it just to burn it down. Yeah. Like, he doesn't look at it as un, like a saving grace for some of these kids mm-hmm. or anything like that. He doesn't appreciate anybody who's been there. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even appreciate the woman that he's with at the moment who's a freaking sweetheart. <laughs> Hold on. Which one? Oh. <laughs> Guys. <laughs> um, Conchita? Is it Conchita? Yeah, Conchita. Yes. Yeah. Who's like so nice and she tries to see the good in him she's Mm -hmm. the only one in that orphanage who tries to see the good in him Mm -hmm. and he treats her like shit yeah you have that scene near the beginning that you're talking about where like he's describing or actually conchita asks him like like why why are you so filled with rage and hate for this place and he's just kind of describing how like everyone looks down at you if you're from here and you get that like 4.2 seconds of a glimmer of like ready to empathize with this character and he follows that with exactly what you said. I wish I could burn this place down with everyone in it. No, correction. I wish I could buy it. Yeah. So get to the certain level of prestige yeah. to buy it yeah. to then burn it down. Yeah. So Jacinto to me is also like falling for the lie of capitalism and fascism together. Because when he's talking about what his future is with Conchita, he's talking about like, we're going to leave here and we're going to buy a farm right Mm -hmm. his his character is obsessed with the gold that's kept in the safe at the orphanage Mm -hmm. he is obsessed with wealth and prestige 
in all of its forms. He truly, like, his brain just blocks himself from ever leaving this place without achieving that. Mm -hmm. Without achieving that obsession that he has. Because ideally, they can fucking leave whenever they want. They know where town is. It's a days away. He has access to the car. And Carmen says that when Carlos is introduced to the orphanage. She says, you won't find any bars here. This isn't a prison. Yeah. Right? And yet, Jacinto always sees it like that. And he's never left. That's the thing. He always had the capacity to leave yeah. and he's never left the dude has stayed there for 15 years he's a grown-ass man yep he's not and the thing is like he's not staying to help the orphans yep. he hates the freaking orphans mm-hmm. so it's just like what the fuck jacinto to me is like every dude nowadays who goes and buys tactical gear at walmart and, like <laughs> owns an ar-15 and posts about like my rights my freedoms my liberty my independence but living at, the end at of the their day, mom's house <laughs> yeah but at the end of the day would never actually do anything for real liberty for like the actual liberty no. to live a, a well mean a well-meaning life would never do anything for it it's all selfishness mm-hmm. it's all egotism and this like appeal to power mm-hmm. um so the foil, the contrast to Jacinto is Dr. Casadas. What's, I have, a, I have quite a few things. What's your take on Dr. Casadas? I love him. He's a sweetie. Um, he, he does state, you know, he's been at that orphanage for 20 plus years. He's found where his meaning is and he's not going to leave. He is absolutely infatuated with Carmen. He recites poetry for her he's an absolute gentleman he mm-hmm. gets up every single day clean shave like clean shaven room clean and it's so sad the one day you see him not clean cleanly shaven and he's kind of disheveled is yeah. unfortunately the day that he realizes they have to leave that place they have to pack everything up and leave because he saw mr ayala who was the guy who dropped off carlos mm-hmm get shot in the head so much there so much so much so one other thing to note there is that um this is also the day after dr casadas hears carmen who he's in love with who's the the like principal in charge of the orphanage um she is in a sexual relationship with a jacinto which i have questions about who is much younger much younger Mm -hmm. um so this uh, this scene, right, where Dr. Xada sees Mr. Ayala um, being being gunned down. They talk in the town about these being members of the international brigades. Um, and they're essentially saying, like, oh, what, what are these people doing here anyways? And how some of them, including Mr. Ayala, he's from Argentina. Right. And so you have someone from Argentina. They talk about a man from China being there. And so the idea that this orphanage created a family for those who didn't have one, to me, parallels with the international brigades creating a political movement for those who couldn't agree on any of the other ones that were out there. Like, if yeah. you couldn't agree with. Oh, I don't I don't like Stalinism, so I'm a Trotskyist, but you know, maybe I'm more of an anarchist and I'm falling in with Bakunin and, and all of these things, and then you've got like the liberal bourgeois and 
all of these elements of what were center and left politics, if you couldn't find out where you fit in there, it was pretty easy to say, you know what I fucking hate? Fascists. Yeah. I hate people like Jacinto. I hate I hate people like Captain Vidal. And being able to say this is bad and unequivocally saying this is bad, not having to like philosophize about why this is bad was so unifying and seeing that heartbreak in Dr. Casadas's face when he watches them put up against a wall and gun down. It's like, it hits me hard. It hits me so hard because Casadas isn't a partisan. He throughout the film, they talk about how like Carmen and Dr. Casadas, they are doing things for the cause they are definitely doing things for the Republican cause. But they're not like diehard believers. Uh, and even Carmen, when Mr. Ayala drops off Carlos, uh, Mr. Ayala goes, well, your husband, he was a great man. He did a lot for the cause. And Carmen was like, no, my husband didn't do anything compared to what I have done. He died. I have to live on and continue like helping this cause in all of the little ways of taking in the orphans, of hiding the gold, of getting people fake passports and papers to escape. And so them just kind of losing that hope when they hear that news of Mr. Mr. Arella being killed, it's heartbreaking. There's a lot of heartbreaking moments in this movie. Mm-hmm. There's a lot. Um, so let's talk about the, what gives this film its title, the devil's backbone. What's your take on, on that symbolism? Hmm. So there, there's a scene where Carlos is hanging out with, you know, Dr. Casadas in his little, it's a, it's also a classroom, right? It's like a classroom slash science lab where he has everything slash like medical facility. Yeah. Um, Because he's actually treating, is he treating a wound on his face? Yeah, he's treating Mm -hmm. a cut on his face that he freaking got from Jacinto because that guy's an asshole. Mm -hmm. Um, But Dr. Casares is, you know, talking to him about some things and he's staring at these jars that are filled with fetuses. And he talks about, you know, some children, you know, not being born right and everything. And he points to this jar of a fetus who's backbone is exposed whose spinal spinal column is exposed and he says you know they call this the devil's backbone and then he goes on to state how this fetus is actually preserved in rum so rum is really really old rum is preserving it and he starts to spoon some of it out and he says you know people will believe what they want to believe they believe that this rum can treat ailments you know can bring does does he say like bring wealth like i don't think bring wealth but like it'll heal diseases it'll it'll... heal diseases it'll heal erectile dysfunction (laughs) all these things and you could probably explain it a little bit better than i did i didn't write down what he Mm -hmm. wrote um but he pretty much states to carlos people will believe what they want to believe especially when they're kind of in a state of despair Mm-hmm. So if somebody is upset because of an illness, sometimes they'll take whatever they can take if they're told it'll fix this. Yeah. So they'll drink the rum that's preserving a baby. Yeah. If they're told it'll fix it. Yeah. But so, and 
And the thing that I love, though, because that's such an easy, and in my opinion, it's like a lazy message. It's a lazy message, to me at least, to say like, oh, people are superstitious because it's because it's comforting. Mm-hmm. Like for me, that's lazy. There's so much that goes into superstition. There's so much, so many reasons why people do it. Because Carlos, so the reason he gets in this conversation, because it's slowly coming back to me now, mm-hmm. Carlos asks him if he believes in ghosts. Yeah. Yeah. But then after explaining all of this to Carlos, what does Dr. Casadas do? He takes a drink of the rum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And to me, like, so one of the things that I wanted to talk about was how Del He's Toro's... telling this kid not to believe in superstition. Ghosts don't exist. And then he just does that shit. Okay, sorry, go. Yeah, yeah, but no, like, so I think this is actually perfect. And to me, this is like the way to to get this message across without being lazy. Um, And it points to what Del Toro's cultural anti-fascism is. Del Toro, to me, in these two films, wants to give no ground, no ground, concede nothing to fascism. And fascism, historically, has tried so hard to take over the kind of myths and symbols of cultures. And one of them is, like, taking over superstition. And Del Toro is kind of saying, like, nah, everybody needs superstition. And as much as Dr. Casadas wants to be, like, Mr. Medical Man of Science, he still to himself goes well maybe it works or maybe this is just going to make me feel better and god damn it that's okay it's okay to hold on to your superstitions take them make them revolutionary make them liberatory make them things that support you don't concede superstition to the other side that's my take on it at least yeah superstition is definitely sometimes something that gives people hope when they feel like all hope may be lost mm-hmm. in certain aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the boys, even if, even if, so like Carlos, right? Carlos, for a decent chunk of the film, I think he goes back and forth on whether or not he believes in the ghost, whether or not he believes that he's seeing Santi, but he has other superstitions too. He talks to the bomb, right? Like he says to the bomb, he asks it, if you have a heartbeat, if you are real, show me where Santi is. Yeah. And then the ribbon flies off and shows them where Santi is. Which, honestly, I never even noticed the ribbons before until that scene. Mm-hmm. I was like, when the hell was there ribbons on that? Yeah, so it was there the entire time really? in the present. Yeah. I never even noticed it. Yeah. Um, and so that brings us to Santi. Um, I'm... I. I have so much. Wait, you totally skipped Carmen. You don't want to talk about Carmen? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Hello. Carmen. Yes. Carmen. Go for it. Yeah. You, you talk Carmen. Carmen confuses me. <laughs> <laughs> she confuses me a little bit. Um, She's definitely a very strong female role. Yeah. You know, like Kevin said, in this movie, you see that her husband passed away fighting a cause that he believed in. And now she has to continue that. You know, she has to take care of these kids every day. She's the one who has to tell them, you know, whoever dropped you off. She doesn't say it outright, but she knows they're not coming back. You know, they might pass away or something might happen. Um, And, you know, that was kind of the case with Jacinto. He was left behind 
for 15 years. Yeah, and his correct me if I'm wrong. I think his his dad was like an accountant. An accountant. So he definitely yeah, had like a bougie family. Yeah. Before they died. Um. But Carmen just confuses me a little bit because she's definitely a strong woman. You know, she she's got her prosthetic leg. That does it ever say how she how that happened? I don't think they do. I don't think no. they ever mentioned what happened. No. Um, you'd imagine that is something to do with the war you'd imagine yeah she you know she's running this orphanage she has her little safe that she keeps her tabs on and later you figure out that that key that he's always looking for Mm -hmm. it's hidden in her prosthetic leg Mm -hmm. um you know she definitely i I feel like she has a spot for dr casares but she won't let herself into that Mm -hmm. i don't know if it's because she doesn't want to be heartbroken again or something or because she has shame for what she's doing she does have shame with oh. this just seen through situation yeah yeah she she says to him, she um to him she says you are like my leg yeah you are like my prosthetic leg it hurts and it is a burden and it is something that i do not like seeing but she flat out says like i am ashamed it's necessary of this. It's necessary. I need to put this on. I need to put this to stand up every day and mm-hmm. continue to do what I'm doing. But there's something badass in, in 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 the writing of a female character who quite openly says, like, no, I need I also need my own like sexual gratification. In this but weird, shameful, know? like okay. terrible. So this <laughs> is where I'm confused. This is where I'm confused. Does she need that sexual gratification or is she doing this to keep a freaking eye on Jacinto? She knows. Oh, I don't think. She knows he's a piece of shit, though. Like, and yeah. you can see she's not getting touched by him, like, around her body. She doesn't even want to kiss him. Yeah. Like, that's how disgusted she is by yeah, it. Yeah. But she knows he's taking keys every single time he does this with her. I don't think she's stupid enough to realize like he's not taking keys because she notices. You see, she mm-hmm. notices in the keys early scene yeah. missing from her link. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, yes, she's getting satisfaction out of him. Maybe yes, she's trying to like please herself because she's she's still wants to get pleased. Yeah, you know. But in the same aspect, I was like trying to understand this in my mind, and I'm like, is she freaking doing this to keep a tabs on this dude? It's good. I I, I haven't thought about that. I don't I didn't get that. It's a fucked up immediate... way of keeping tabs on him, but <laughs> I was just like what like I was really just trying to rip apart mm-hmm. why this woman who pretty much raised this orphan yeah is having sex with him. Yeah. Well, I also think it points to it points to the fact that no one no one in this film, no character in this film is is without sin is is not guilty of something you know even dr casadas he he's guilty of essentially being a snake oil salesman of like selling that rum to the villagers and knowing that it's bullshit but there you go he does that Mm -hmm. to help the orphanage to save the orphanage yeah carmen does this she does this this terrible not good thing Bad thing, bad bad thing. I I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe the the like flip side, the inverse of it is this is her way of keeping tabs on this person that she has zero 
trust and believes is fully malicious. Because I think she knows that. Like, But it's nonetheless terrible. If he leaves, he's going to do something bad. Yeah. Yeah. Although I would say perhaps the one... Yeah, perhaps like the one kind of pure character aside from the young kids is Conchita. Yeah. You know? And she is a badass. She is a badass. In that ending scene right before her death where she stares him in the eye and she's just like, I ain't afraid of you. Yeah. And like when you're first introduced to her, you know, you get this feeling Jacinto is not good and stuff and it definitely gets proven. Yet she's always by his side. She looks at him as, you know... The orphan that was stuck there for 15 years she wants to be by his side and support him and have a better life after this and yeah. look forward to a farm and all these things but the second that she sees him you know bringing the gasoline and stuff and mm-hmm. being a piece of crap and wanting to blow up the orphans and all this stuff she pulls a rifle on him and yeah. she just it's just so sad because she knows he's horrible too. She stands up against him, but she can't kill him. Yeah. She could have ended it all there. But like, I just feel so bad because she couldn't. And then even in the end, you know, she knows he's a piece of crap. He leaves and she's walking down that dirt road, you know, trying to get to the town, trying Mm -hmm. to get some help for everything that he's done Mm -hmm. and fixing his, his mistakes, his mistakes. And he shows up in front of her and pretty much he says you know do what i want you to do so that i can prove myself in front of these goons Mm -hmm. that i freaking have and she says no you're an animal Mm -hmm. like you're a disgusting horrible person she knows she's gonna die Mm -hmm. like she absolutely knows she's gonna die Mm -hmm. so that's yeah. the road that she died on (laughs) and you've brought this up before there is a pretty specific and unique kind of lens of feminism mm-hmm. in del toro's films in in the vast majority of his female characters they're fleshed out whole real characters who you know you think about like the Bechtel test and things like that like they have their own motivations yeah and and conchita is an example of that where even before she sees the gasoline scene when when jaime takes off or or gets the little cigar ring and gives it to her in just like this like super innocent childish kind of tween crush way Mm -hmm. and she almost without thinking about it just has like the most wonderful response when Jacinto says like what was that because she knows he's a she knows he's an asshole she knows Mm -hmm. he's a prick and rather than trying to explain it to him she just goes it's children's things Mm -hmm. smiles and keeps it on her on her um on her finger finger, yeah 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 so if you haven't watched this film or if you know nothing else about this film you probably know what santi or what the ghost of santi looks like um and just the composition of that character it points to what you were saying before that like part of what makes a, a del toro film is that everything is thought of everything is accounted for and that santi's ghost is a ghost that looks like it is still drowning is absolutely beautiful yeah how he created this character 
it gives you chills. He's probably one of my, yeah, one of my favorite ghosts in a movie, if not my favorite ghost in a movie, because when Santi was killed, you know, unfortunately his head was bashed against the concrete wall and everything. So you see the blood come out. By who? Jacinto. And he's laying on the ground, you know, once he realizes he's fully dead, ties him up and pretty much drops his body i don't think he was dead though because if you look at the scene where he's like he's drowning bubbles are coming out of his mouth no he was dead he felt his pulse he literally felt his pulse and said shit i don't know jacinto doesn't strike me as a medical professional no <laughs> but i i think the kid was at least definitely unconscious like yeah. oh yeah yeah, yeah. he was sure. twitching and just not yeah. neurologically responding well um but the water that he's encapsulated in, it's just, there's particles around it. Mm-hmm. The the clouding of the blood in the water, it's all represented in his ghost. Yeah. You can just see that cloud of blood, you know, constantly kind of coming out and flowing out of his head. And as he's walking, you can see those yellow particles yeah. around him from the water that he's placed in. Um, and he's got this you know whiteness to his skin that i I relay as like a decaying body in Mm -hmm. water um but also too depending on which ways he's hit by the light you can see his skeleton underneath it Mm -hmm. which is what is left of him is just a skeleton under the water so i i just thought he did it so beautifully Mm -hmm. how he represented him as a ghost Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah And the other thing is, and this is another like del Toro characteristic, he is not afraid to mix practical effects with CGI. No. Um, And I think a lot of directors don't do that. A lot of directors, like within a scene, it is either practical or CGI. And he just kind of blends the two of them so beautifully. Um even with Santi himself is like you can you you don't even notice the transition between when you're seeing the actor in a prosthetic and then like you said the light hits them and you're seeing this like CGI version where you're seeing the skeleton of Santi. Yeah. And it's absolutely beautiful. And the other thing that is like very del Toro-esque is slow brutal injuries. Yes. But one thing one other thing about Santi, sorry. And yeah. like that del toro does with especially his child characters he never takes away that child essence from them yeah santi's a ghost he's trying to get this message across but you don't necessarily seem afraid of him because he's still you know kind of running around Mm -hmm. and like still somewhat playing with carlos at times like he wants to say stuff to him but it's this kind of like hide and seek game that they're playing constantly back and forth that young kids will do yeah And I thought that was just great. Like, it's just Mm -hmm. amazing. He -hmm. never takes that. Like, he didn't make him super horrifying or, like, yes, he's scary, but, like, he wasn't unapproachable. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought that connection between Carlos and Santi was, you know, amazing. Yeah. He also... So there aren't many jump scares in any of his films, but he gets, like, that one good jump scare in Devil's Backbone, which is the keyhole scene, right, where Carlos is, is, like, hiding in a closet and then he looks through the keyhole, and then bam, yeah. you see Santi's eye. Um, and I just thought that struck me exactly like you're saying. It struck me like kids playing hide and seek, 
not like a ghost that's out to fuck with you. Elevated hide and seek. (laughs) (laughs) Um, To the extreme. Yeah, and and Santi, Santi is the past looking for justice. Um, as much as all of the war is playing out on the orphanage, and you know the the uh, fascist kind of nationalist forces are nearby, there is still this injustice in the past, which is what Jacinto did to Santi. Um, and at first, we think that the culprit is not Jacinto, but is Jaime. Yeah. Um, because you see in one of the opening scenes-ish, mm-hmm. in the beginning, you see that he's the one with Santi's body. You know, you see that he touches Santi, gets blood on him, and he's like, holy crap, he's dead. Yeah. And then the next thing you see is Santi's body getting put into the water. Yeah. And then at some point, Jaime above the water staring down into the blood that's like kind of like smoking at the top yeah yeah and i'm torn on jaime because i don't i don't necessarily think he's a changed or better person um three quarters of the film you really don't like him um he's also like dropping homophobia left and right uh which is done in a way where like you as the audience are supposed to be like nah fuck that kid but towards the end of the film when you realize no Jaime had seen what Jacinto did um, he is scared and he considers himself a coward and he's like trying to make up for that cowardice but I don't necessarily believe that Jaime is a good person I think towards the end he's going to become a good person because I think they literally set him up as possibly being a character that might turn out like Jacinto. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I saw him as. But then I think as everything starts to change him, as he starts to realize, you know, especially with Carlos, like, I am bullying the crap out of this kid, and he still won't rat me out, and he's actually protecting me. Like, not everybody's out to get me, you know? And then he does have that, like, sweet love for Conchita and all this stuff, but he saw some serious shit. He's still in an orphanage. That still sucks. He yeah. saw his best friend literally get killed while he convinced him to go into the basement to catch slugs. Yeah. So I'm sure he definitely has guilt from that. Yeah, but it goes back to what you said at the beginning when we started talking about the characters in this film. You make decisions. every like All of these characters have trauma. All of these characters would have a reason to make terrible um, kind of um, antisocial decisions, but you make the decisions of what you're going to do with it. Jaime makes the decision to be a homophobic bully. In the beginning. But towards the end, you see, you know, he's friends with Carlos. He's letting him in. He sees that Jacinto is the bad guy, and he says, you know, I was a coward, but I'm going to change. Yeah. Like, bring him. And then he does. And, like, you see him guide the young children and everything like that. Like, he yeah. sh- he shows. I think he's one of those examples that, like, yes, he could have turned out to be Jacinto. But it shows that you can still change. Yeah. And I agree. that I just don't know that I believe he has changed. I think he he's on a better trajectory. But I don't, like, I don't see Jaime as, as a changed character entirely. But 
But Jacinto's end. Um, those spears, those like shaved spears. To the pit killed <sighs> me. The Del Toro. One to the armpit. I, I literally have to look away. I like gore. Yeah. I like some gore. I like well done gore. And he is aces he, at it. He is the king at it. He does not do a lot of gore in nope. his movies. He definitely doesn't like. It's just the it's gore not dead alive. It's yeah, not, it's the not, gore you know, he decides to do to the face. is timed perfectly, shot perfectly, mm-hmm. and the spots he chooses to do them mm-hmm. make it's you unique. fucking cringe. Yeah, he doesn't cut off an arm. He like yeah, no. it's it's always very no. specific. And the man loves to break joints. You yeah. Know? Up close shots of joints. When poor little Galvez uh-huh. was coming his out of ankle. the window and just that close up screen uh. of his little ankle snapping. <laughs> little baby ankle. Just little baby <laughs> ankle snapping makes you cringe. But I just, I keep going back to that shot of the spear to the pit. Yeah. Because it's, it is painful. It is an awkward spot. Mm-hmm. Like it's, he also gets stabbed in the arm and stab, stabbed in the back, which mm-hmm. other th- movies do that. And you're and just so. with a cane. Yeah, but you're so like desensitized to it. You're mm-hmm. like, yes, this is a fighting scene. He's getting stabbed, mm-hmm. but the pit. Mm-mm. Nope. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. So and and so, you know, Santi tells Carlos, "Bring me Jacinto." They kill Jacinto. They um, throw him into the same pit of water where he had thrown Santi. He wasn't even dead yet. Like no. they they stab the shit out of him and then you just see Carlos say Santi and yeah. they push him. And what in. makes him sink? The gold. Yeah. He fucking took all his time and focus and destroyed everything for these gold ingots mm-hmm. that were in his pocket and like in a little bag and they weighed him down enough mm-hmm. and as you see him all of a sudden not giving a shit about the gold anymore. Mm-hmm. And trying to take them out of his pockets, yeah. Santi just holds on to him. It's that self-destruction of fascism and capitalism. Like, yep. they will destroy themselves. Mm-hmm. They will destroy themselves. Yeah, Devil's Backbone. Do you have more you want to add to that one? I'm just looking through my notes. Dur, dur, dur. There was something I definitely wanted to talk about. Oh, the arches. Did you want to talk about... I did, but, um, okay, so this is actually, we watched this part after we watched the movie. It was just like a little bit of commentary that Del Toro did that I Mm -hmm. thought stuck out a bunch, um, is he said the movie was about the idea of ghosts are like insects trapped in amber. And he wanted the architecture to really reflect this. So they actually use archways throughout the movie to come off as the human figure combined by the architecture. But I think he also does this in other ways. Yeah. Like the yellow water just stuck out to me. Mm -hmm. Like Santi's body is forever floating there in that yellow... Brackish. Brackish water that is filled with particles around him. Mm -hmm. And now Jacinto is too. (laughs) And it's like, these are moments of tragedy... Mm-hmm. that are just forever encapsulated in this amber mm-hmm. just like an insect is yeah um but yeah it, it just it's also the architecture he does in his movies and everything and like these are the things guys and the details that he does 
that you don't notice, but it's what gives you the feeling that you have throughout the movie. Yeah. Because going back, I was like, oh my God, if he did regular doorways Mm -hmm. throughout this whole building, it's crazy that just changing a door rate really does change that feeling for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, It's incredible, especially for a film that has like such minimal settings. You know, the vast majority of this film is in that orphanage. And, like, in two, three, maybe four rooms of that orphanage, and that's it. And yet it gets across so much. So much happens in those different settings, those different areas. In that kind of playground area with the bomb, so many things happen. And nonetheless, the setting and what it's shaped to be, it like you said, it, it penetrates into your mind even if you're not consciously thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's The Devil's Backbone. Uh, incredible, incredible film. And it again, Devil's Backbone takes place, war is still on, but it's towards the tail end of the war. Now we're jumping 2006, Pan's Labyrinth. The film opens up... Um, And we see a young girl who is bleeding out, essentially. Um, And we have the narrator telling us, what is this fairy tale background story of a princess who escaped her kingdom? And when she escaped, and the kingdom was the underworld, when she escaped, she forgot who she was. Uh, And then as we kind of cycle up to this young girl we see the blood actually going back into her body. Um, And she's kind of running around very innocently. And then we see uh, the young girl's name is Ophelia. Her and her mother, Carmen, are on their way to go live with Carmen's new husband, who is a man by the name of Captain Vidal. Now, Captain Vidal is a member of the Falange, a, a fascist. He is a captain in the fascist army uh, and he is newly in charge of this kind of rural outpost in the countryside and the movie is set in 1944 so at this point the spanish civil war had ended it had technically ended about three or four years ago uh, at the start of the film at least But the fighting has continued, and so the Republican forces, who once were kind of a burgeoning military, are now scattered guerrilla resistance forces, partisan forces. And so Ophelia and her mom move to the countryside house, and along the way, she runs into this this insect, who eventually turns into a fairy, who leads her into a labyrinth. And in the labyrinth, she meets a fawn. Uh, And the fawn tells Ophelia that she is, in fact, the lost princess of the underworld. And that in order for her to be able to return home, she will have to complete three tasks. Uh, Ophelia's mother, Carmen, is pregnant with Captain Vidal's child. And she is having an incredibly difficult, medically risky pregnancy. At the military outpost, we're also introduced to Mercedes who is a caretaker for the outpost, and Dr. Ferrero, uh, who is the doctor for, who's there to be Carmen's doctor to take care of the child. Captain Vidal is convinced that Carmen will have a son uh, and essentially tells Dr. Ferrero that 
he needs to do whatever necessary to make sure that his son is born there so his son can be with his father. Um, and Mercedes, we learn, is aiding her brother, Pedro, who is a part of the resistance fighters in the woods. After a series of um, scuffles and events, we find that Captain Vidal realizes that he has resistance supporters and informers in his encampment. While that is happening, we also have Ophelia slowly completing two of her three tasks. But on the second task, one in which she was instructed to not eat or touch anything, she fails that task, consumes two grapes as the pale man cons literally rips apart two of the three fairies who are there to guide Ophelia. Upon hearing this, the fawn tells Ophelia that she is no longer allowed to return to the underworld and that magic will die with her. Uh, after Captain Vidal finds a mandrake root that Ophelia was using to support her mom back to health and burns the mandrake root, uh, Ophelia's mother Carmen goes into labor and dies giving birth to a child. Um, after Ophelia's mother, or while Ophelia's mother is dying, is when Captain Vidal also begins to find Dr. Fredo, find his betrayal, kills him, uh, attempts to kill Mercedes, who ends up getting away, tries to take Ophelia with her. They are captured. Um, Mercedes brutally injures Captain Vidal in one of the most satisfying, gory moments of this film. Uh, Ophelia is given a last chance to return to the underworld by the fawn, but she must bring her baby brother to the fawn, and essentially she finds out sacrifice him. Ophelia instead chooses to sacrifice herself, at which point Captain Vidal is right behind Ophelia, shoots her in the stomach. We watch Ophelia slowly die. Captain Vidal tries to walk out of the labyrinth only to find Mercedes and the guerrilla forces waiting for him. Uh, they take his child, they kill Captain Vidal, they go in and they watch and try and console Ophelia as she is dying. We as the audience are told that Ophelia in fact passed the third trial and will take her seat alongside her real father and her real mother, the king and queen of the underworld. So that's the movie. So I'm just going to say, your summaries are way more in-depth than mine. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Kevin, you got to do this summary. It's like one in the morning. I also, like, I A, I get goosebumps every time I watch this movie. This is, like, oh, me such too. a fucking beautiful movie. But part of it is, like, I've shown this film in class, and... I, I adore picking apart this movie. There's so much to it. And each time, even this time watching it, there was new things that, that I was able to kind of um, really focus in on. Yeah. So, symbolism galore. Everywhere. <laughs> um, there's also the idea that like you have these, these parallel narratives. There's the narrative of Ophelia, Captain Vidal, Carmen, and Mercedes in real life. But then you also have the the kind of fairy tale narrative of Ophelia going through these three tasks and meeting the fawn, and the two sync up in very important ways. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I I also say that v- Captain Vidal, much like even more so than Jacinto, there ain't a goddamn thing about this man for anyone to like. No. Like from scene one, as pregnant Carmen is driving up, and she's not even driving like his men drove her. This asshole is checking his stopwatch and complaining that they're 20 minutes late. Yeah. Um, And we see this obsession of Captain Vidal with time, with mechanization, uh, his office, the, the backdrop of his office is this giant cog, this giant gear in the back. Um, He has this obsession with precision. And so, even if you were able to let go the fact that he was complaining about Carmen being 20 minutes late, he then, when he's introduced to Ophelia, Ophelia very innocently, very sweetly extends her left hand to shake his hand. And the dude takes it as like the world's biggest insult um, and grabs her hand quite aggressively and just says, like, you never, you never use your left hand. Um, her right hand was clutching what mattered. Books. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, no, he never gave a shit about Ophelia or her mother, like you said, right from the get-go. All he cared about was that baby. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. he even said to the doctor... If if it comes down to my wife or my child, I want my child to live. Mm-hmm. And it's not endearing or anything at no. all. It's I want my legacy to go on. I don't care about her. Yeah. You know, she's foolish and everything. She also lives in like these fairy tales and stuff. He mm-hmm. never once cared about Ophelia. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's a piece of work. He's a piece of work and he has daddy issues. Yeah. Hardcore daddy issues. So... Yeah, and it's the kind of daddy issues that are that are part and parcel of really fragile masculinity. Yeah, like, he wants to live up to what his father was. Yeah. He wants to, you know, do, for some reason, start this tradition of when he's about to die to mm-hmm. break a watch. And, you know, that watch gets passed on to his son Mm -hmm. so that he knows what time he died yeah um but which is weird because when he's confronted about the watch he lies about it he lies about it so that's a question i had as well that's one of the one of the things in the film that i'm like i don't quite get this um and it's is it a family tradition that's going to be passed down that's a secret no because, because the watch that he has is presumably his father's watch that's not a random watch because the glass on the clock face it's is shattered. cracked. Yeah, yeah, it's cracked, and, and he's constantly like tinkering with it mm-hmm. and adjusting with it. And you would think of somebody of his, you know, rank and everything, if a watch broke for him and it had no meaning, you just get yeah. another. That's one. That's his father's watch. Yeah. That's definitely his father's watch. Why he lies about it to the gentleman at the um, the dinner party, I'm not sure. So another thing that I notice with Vidal is, especially when we're first introduced to him, um, and I'm pretty sure this is added intentionally, there's a sound as well as this this like visual element of stiffness. Like, he is rigid. And we know that he has this very rigid personality, but he almost moves like he squeaks. <laughs> I, imagine, I imagine a smell of starch 
and just like a real kind of mechanical rigidity to everything this this guy does. Really? Because like I sense a smell of freaking whiskey <laughs> and I don't know, a lot of cologne. He looks like he wears a lot of cologne to me. Yeah. Not yeah. good cologne. No, no. Um Speaking like we did in terms of the devil's backbone when it comes to costumes and color palettes and things like that, Ophelia is always in some way connected to green. She has a lot of earth tones. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's her connection to the fawn or pan. Um, I, I, I find it interesting and I wonder how much of this is like struggles for translation and, um, so Desiree and I both speak Portuguese. Portuguese and Spanish are super similar. When we watch a film in Spanish, we end up kind of half listening, half reading the subtitles. Um, and there were more than a handful of times where we were listening to what the characters were actually saying in Spanish, and they don't match entirely with what the subtitles are saying. Um, and the fact that you have a fawn rather than pan um, is interesting to me because pan has such a strong characteristic pan is kind of like the pan is what the fawn tries to be multiplied by five right because pan is usually very conniving mm -hmm. like very a trickster and mm -hmm. everything and one thing i wrote down about the fawn is i never trusted him yeah. i never got a sense of trust from him he's always very just kind of creepy something's not right mm -hmm. about him it just how he explains himself in the beginning where he's like i'm just i'm very old i come with many names you know the trees mm -hmm. have mm -hmm. different names for me and stuff he's got this whole spiel and like he's talking to a child so it's yeah. just kind of like she puts a little bit of trust in him and everything and that definitely changes later on mm -hmm. when he mm -hmm. says you know in her final trial when he just asks, you know, for a little bit of blood from the innocent, which is her little brother. Yeah. That's when she changes. And that's when she realized this guy is not good. Yeah. You know, this creature that I've been following and listening to and abiding by, he's not good. This is everything that I want. You know, I want to be princess of this world and make my brother prince and all these things that she wants to get away from this world. Yeah. She's willing to throw it away because in the end she realizes, oh, my God, I don't, I don't trust you. Yeah, yeah. So for me, I, I think that I think the toad, the pale man, and the fawn are all representations of either Captain Vidal or what he stands for. Right? Because the toad... Which are the tree, the three trials, right? The three trials are really the toad, the pale man, the fawn. The toad's guilty of essentially like this gluttony, where the toad doesn't care about the damage that he's causing. It's just me, 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 mm -hmm. right? Which is Vidal, which is fascism, which is like what Vidal's party and Vidal's faction is doing. Um, and it's it's interesting that. Ophelia uses the toad's gluttony against him, right? Hides the three stones amongst the the roach. Mm -hmm. The pale man, for me, is kind of like the really illicit 
seductivity of power. It's such a seductive table spread. You want to grab, there's something there for everyone. Whether it's, whether you're like me and you have a like massive sweet tooth, or if you prefer savory things, there's something there for everyone. And yet we all know what power does. There isn't, we've got thousands and thousands of years of history to record what power does to people. And it doesn't matter how blatantly you are told, don't touch it. You still come close, and in, in Ophelia's case, she still touches it. And what happens as a result is that the people around her, or in this case, the fairies around her, are hurt. And then the fawn as, as Captain Vidal, especially in that very last moment, like you said, in that last trial, where he says to her, before she escapes, he says you need to promise me your total and complete obedience. No questions. You must obey. And, like, that's that's v Captain Vidal's dream. Captain Vidal's dream is to live in a world in which people obey him. No questions asked. Um, and when Ophelia even slightly second-guesses that, the fawn's reaction is total rage. Yeah. So I agree with all of that. But I also view all those things in a different way as well. Mm -hmm. So something, and honestly, I didn't notice this about this movie until I took like a fantasy literature course in college. Mm -hmm. um, it was just one of those extra credit courses. And we actually went over this movie. And my teacher was amazing. And she opened my eyes to a bunch of things. There is a lot of female anatomy references mm -hmm. in this movie. Mm-hmm. So one of the biggest ones, which I didn't realize until I took this class, is, yes, the toad. So where the toad is located, it's, you know, she explains it's this tree. It once was very beautiful. You know, it lived and stuff, um, beautiful flowers, all these things. And then this toad came into its roots and it decided to be gluttonous and everything. And it's killing off this tree. This yeah. tree is pretty much dead. It can't it can't bloom and do what it needs to do because it's it's just getting suffocated by this toad that's within its roots. If you look at the shot of the tree, mm -hmm. it looks, and I wonder if people will notice this now, it looks like a uterus. Yeah. Like yep. it looks like it's just got two thicker branches at the top that are broken off yep. and then the big base. Yep. So I kind of look at it as a different thing. I look at it as... You know, Ophelia wants to help her mother. Her mother mm -hmm. in this moment, you know, is pregnant with Vidal's baby, but she's sick. This yeah. pregnancy has not been good and it's killing her. Yeah. Ophelia knows that it's killing her. So I look at that toad kind of as I look at her little brother in an mm -hmm. essence, mm -hmm. where this tree wants to be so once used to be so beautiful and strong but it's now getting suffocated from the inside. Yeah. And her job is to go in and to pretty much feed this toad, you know, these stones to get back a key. Mm -hmm. But what you notice is when she's crawling through these tunnels, there's just walls of thick, you know, vine and everything that mm -hmm. is the life source for the tree. Mm -hmm. And they're all dead. And you just, I just view that as like the veins in a uterus. Like yeah. she's going down. She gets to the frog 
and you know it's just this gluttonous frog and everything and like she has these stones that he has to eat Mm -hmm. in order for him to pretty much like vomit Mm -hmm. and die and that way she can get the key back so it's just it's just so is it so would the stones be kind of like an abortion in that case i don't i don't know because at that time for for a lot of women it's not that abortions weren't possible it's that in in many cases and this goes back to like the kind of real strong pagan roots of this film uh, or, or pagan implications of this film, a lot of times it was taking the right herbs and tinctures and things like that yeah. in order to force an abortion. I don't know. But it's just like, I mean, even in class we argued, I don't remember, I took this class 10 years ago, but it's just, I think there was like argument of whether they represented, you know, like eggs or ovaries or mm-hmm. things like that. But it, it, Ophelia takes it upon herself to go in to presumably get this key but she ends up saving this tree as well because she's ridding it of what is toxic to it and everything and you know speaking on like the female anatomy and everything Mm -hmm. and like just the representation in this movie when it comes to the fawn Mm -hmm. he has those symbols on his head Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. he's got the two horns and everything and he's got those circular symbols which like you just kind of view that yet again it's just like the uterine symbol (laughs) yeah yeah it's just the two horns and that base um so i see that represented in him and then when it comes to the pale man when it comes to the pale man um i don't know i i don't know i didn't really see that much symbolism in it until she was getting into his lair and she started walking down the hallways Mm -hmm. where del toro brings in those archways again Mm -hmm. that whole encasing thing is happening again the walls going towards the pale man there that dark deep crimson Mm -hmm. red with like peeling and stuff to show like age and wear and all of these things and you know once she goes towards the pale man you can see he's skinny but he's covered in just layers and layers of stretched skin. Yeah. yeah. So he just, he to me is like a symbol of glutton himself. Mm-hmm. Like you could tell in his past or whatever he was doing, he gorged himself. Yeah. And you can see the images on the wall. He eats children. Yeah. So he gorged himself on all, I'm sure, these innocent children who couldn't stop themselves from temptation, mm-hmm. got super fat skinny and mm-hmm. i'm sure he repeats this process over and over again mm-hmm. so it's just i don't know yeah yeah it's just crazy so and and i think both are right plus other versions yeah. of this interpretation and that's where i think there's like this brilliant and beautiful pagan metaphysics in in the way that pan's labyrinth as a film plays out um and like i call it pagan metaphysics but it's also part of that anti-fascist culture as well where all of these things can be true at the same time because Mm -hmm. when i first watched this film and you you get to the ending you think to yourself like oh this is a like this is just a beautiful kind of surrealist um almost like a magical realism right and then I watched the film a second time, knowing what I knew the ending was. And I realized in those first 30 seconds, I was like, holy shit. You start the film with Ophelia dead or dying. You start the film with Ophelia dying. Mm-hmm. Every minute of this movie 
could be the dreams of a dying girl. Yeah. Every minute of this of this film could have not taken place and could just have been the psyche of this young dying girl mm-hmm. interpreting the horrors and the cruelty of of a world at war of a family of just total inhumanity of fascism and of Vidal Mm -hmm. and the way that her psyche interprets it is through fairy tales yeah and that's that's honestly what I believe as well throughout the movie Ophelia is constantly being told do not live in these fairy tales like Mm -hmm. live in this real world and everything and Mm -hmm. you can see in the beginning her mother says these things to her but she knows she's still a child Mm -hmm. and everything and you know she's still going to give her books and have mm-hmm. her, you know, live this life. It's not until her mother gets, you know, before she gives birth and passes away that she says, you know, life is not perfect. We have to do things we don't want to do. Yeah. You can't live in these fairy tales anymore. You need to grow up. Yeah. But you're And that's actually when she burns the mandrake. And that's when she burns the mandrake. And it's just like, so Ophelia's constantly battling with it. She's a young girl living in a really hard time. And mm-hmm. to just get this pulled away from you. And it is the defining moment in people's lives. You mm-hmm. know, when was the moment you stopped being a kid and you realized I have to be an adult now? You know, we all still hold on to these little moments of mm-hmm. us being kids in these fantasy worlds that we still want to believe in. But this entire horrible thing that she's going through it's so sad as a realization when you finish this movie or when you watch it again. Yeah. It was all just, I believe, a fantasy in her mind that she created to cope with everything that is going on. So, but here's my argument. That doesn't make it less real. No. And and that's, I think, the beauty of the like, and also kind of metaphysics of this is that it can all be real. It can be a dying girl's interpretation of the cruelty of the world while also being real magic and real creatures and real myth and real fantasy because all of that is interpreted in our own brains and and so it's fine if it's all real. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I say that that's also part of that kind of like cultural anti-fascism is if you look at the fascist characters in this film, Yes, you have Captain Vidal, but you also have all of those people who show up to his dinner party. And they're all so one-tone. They're all so, um, like, homogenous, right? And then you compare them to all of the characters who are resistance fighters or sympathetic to the resistance. And all of those characters all have something about them that makes them unique and different and other but they're united in this this belief in this cause. Mm-hmm. You have Frenchie, right, who's presumably French, um, who who loses his leg, and Doctor Fedo has to has to cut off his leg. Um, you also have the young man who's a stutterer, right? You have um, you have Mercedes, who is this woman who you know is totally a bad ass, um, who is running this. All of these different people are, and Ophelia, I think you would throw in there as well, mm-hmm. are also unique and different. And they're all pulled and unified by this cause because they all believe that a world can be a world of and also. Mm-hmm. It can be a world in which you can be one political scheme and I can be a different political, you know, 
philosophy or party. Mm -hmm. And as long as we can agree that the one thing that we will not fucking stand for is fascism, is racism, is, is sexism, as long as we can make that line, we can create a better world. And th that's one thing, too, that is so sad about Carmen, because you can tell that, like, yeah. prior to everything that happened, she had a good life with her husband and her daughter and read these fantasy stories to her daughter. And then just reality hit. Her husband passed away. You know, she, you can tell, like, she still wants to provide for her daughter and provide some sense of safety. Mm -hmm. And sadly, what she thinks she needs to do is marry the captain. Because yeah. she knows he's a piece of shit. You can tell she doesn't agree with his ideals. Mm -hmm. But her job is to sit next to him and be quiet and follow rules. And this is how she thinks she's going to protect Ophelia yeah. and now protect her son. Yeah. And it's so sad because you see her get shut down at the dinner table because you still see those glimmers. Oh, that's such a cringy scene. You still see those glimmers of her being one of those characters, like you were explaining. Yeah. You know, her being like Ophelia and like the Frenchie guy and, you know, everybody that's fighting. Yeah. And like Mercedes and all these things. And she's just getting shut down by him constantly and that mm -hmm. will be her life if she was to live for the rest of her life and she's willing to make that sacrifice sadly yeah for her daughter where other people they're fighting against that you know yeah. they're they're not giving into that and everything and it's just it's this toss-up of do i do this to protect my daughter or do i fight for what i believe in and it's yeah. just it's just sad yeah yeah and the idea that the way to be an adult and the way to like deal with a cruel world is to give up on creativity and magic. So I really think that's what that's what Del Toro I think is railing against when you hear him in interviews and he says that like monsters saved his life, right? I think what he's trying to say is by refusing to give up on fantasy, by refusing to give up on you know, the weird and the out there, mm -hmm. you're really able to say, I won't give in to a fascistic view of a unified version of reality and adulthood and maturity and all those things. And I demand that reality becomes and also. Mm -hmm. And I think that's beautiful. And I think it's necessary and it's lovely. And the other thing that I think is necessary and lovely is the way that Del Toro pulls off gore in this film. <laughs> um, he did it again, guys. Uh -huh. This could so easily have been just a fantasy film, and we wouldn't even consider it for part of the horror genre. And this is one of those things that really pisses me off, is when movies like The Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth doesn't get considered to be horror movies. Nah. This has every facet of a horror film. You've got creatures, but you've also got like these really intense moments of gore. And if you have a semblance of hope in the beginning of this film of Captain Vidal being a redeemable character, all that shit washes away in those first few minutes with the scene of the farmer and his son. Oh, I have to turn my head on this scene i can't like it is yet again shot so well and so real mm -hmm. like i imagine if somebody's face is getting bashed in with a bottle 
that is exactly what it would look like. But the camera angle is brilliant because if you look at the camera angle in that scene, right? And like the first three times I watched this, I never noticed the camera angle because I exactly what you said. I was like, oh, Jesus. Oh, God. Um, but then you realize the scene itself is shot once Vidal starts slamming that bottle into the farmer's son's like nose cavity. It's shot from right behind the shoulder of the farmer's son and aiming up. And so what you are forced to watch is Vidal's cold face and his cold mannerisms as he brutally, brutally kills this kid, right? Kills this young man in front of his father. And again, it goes to the it goes to the idea that Del Toro doesn't give you a redeemable villain. And I like that. I want my villain to be a villain. There is no redemption. There is no, oh, but I kind of get why. No, you are a terrible person because of the decisions that you made. So you've got that scene of gore. But then the other scene of gore that I think is just also brilliantly done is when Dr. Fedo is uh, amputating Frenchie's leg. And the thing is, most directors, if they were directing that scene, would have done everything to the point where the doctor goes, you know, I'm going to try and make this quick. And then perhaps added like a really gruesome, grisly sound effect, but cut away. And what Del Toro does is he doesn't cut away. Instead, he points the camera right at the leg, holds it there for a few seconds, and then you watch as the doctor's saw gets the first cut into the flesh, and you watch the flesh, like, shift and move. Yeah. And the you can see he's not being light-handed. Like, he said, mm -hmm. I'm going to do this in as few strokes as possible. And he keeps to his word, because that first stroke probably takes a third into the leg already. Probably yeah. just everything into the leg right before he gets to the bone. Yeah. And so what I think is brilliant about the way Del Toro does gore is... I, I love gore. I know you're not you're not huge on gore. I can't do like and we talked about this in episode zero, I can't do like torture no for two no. hours straight. But I, I respect the way he does gore. Yeah. So like I, I adore most gore, including like cheesy over the done over the top gore. But with Del Toro's gore, you feel it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? You're like I I can watch Hellraiser pull people across with chain pull people apart with chains all day long and i'm just like hey, that was cool but you don't actually have that like cringe moment of ooh, almost every time and i'm talking across like all his films even just if you've ever seen the first opening scene of don't be afraid of the dark you can't watch that opening scene <laughs> of that film without whole literally like holding, holding your, your mouth teeth. and holding yeah. your teeth so his gore while it's not throughout his films it's a gore that you empathize with and you sit there going god that looks terrible and and that happens throughout pan's labyrinth as well because you have the saw but you also have um i forget i forget the guy's name but the gentleman who stutters who's who's captured by captain mm -hmm. vidal and you see his his hand it's just ripped in half Ugh. pretty much just hanging there though yeah but, like, are you really going to leave out probably one of the best gore scenes in this movie? Because it's it's my probably one of my favorite ones in a movie in general. Which one? When Mercedes 
oh. shoves a knife oh. into Vidal's mouth because he decides to turn his back on her because she's just a woman and yes. she is not a threat to him. She keeps this little knife constantly hidden in her apron, mm-hmm. and it's the knife that she uses to make his food for the day, mm-hmm. you know, care for him, all this stuff. Uses it to free herself, yeah. stab him in the back, shove it in his mouth, and rip his freaking cheek open. Yeah, with the says, beautiful line. Go for yes, it. Yes. Just like, you are not the first pig I gutted or something yeah. like that. I love it. That's <sighs> a moment where you're sitting on the couch and like, fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like the symbolism in there too, right? Of, of this is a very working class tool. This mm-hmm. is literally the thing that she does. That she labors it's with all day. It's not all the fancy tools that he's literally playing with, mm-hmm. talking shit while he thinks she's like yeah. just behind him. Yeah. And it is her knife, that working class instrument. Uh-huh. Fucking And I just love that that's face. the knife that feeds him every day. So yeah. it's going to cut his freaking mouth open. Yeah. And then he goes to like drink a, a little shot of yeah. whatever it is, Tough vodka guy, or something. freaking sews his little mouth back <laughs> shut. Yeah. <laughs> And continuously takes freaking shots of alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and I think that gets us to where we might round this out is perhaps one of the most satisfying endings ever, which is Vidal. So, hold on. Before before we talk about the satisfaction of it, um, I want to talk about kind of like the things leading up to it a little bit that mm-hmm. I noticed. Mm-hmm. So, to reflect back on... I noticed it watching the movie this time, um, you know, stating that Ophelia is in a fantasy world. Da, 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 this is what she does to cope. I don't think she died in front of technically in front of like before the labyrinth goes down into like that basement type area. Um, I think she died before that. So do you remember when she was running in the labyrinth and the captain was behind her and she got to a dead end? And then the labyrinth had to yes. shift itself in order for her to continue on in her story. Yeah. I think that's actually where she died. Like, at least I saw it this way this time. Before the labyrinth shifted, he probably shot her and killed her there and they found her. But her brain continued on with that story. She made it to kind of where that encircling is. Yeah. She made it to unfortunately being shot and her blood being the one that was chosen as the innocent and everything mm-hmm. going up and seeing, you know, her mother and father and you know everything else, which yeah. also her mother and father represented people who passed on because they're both gone now. Mm-hmm. But I just thought that was a point I noticed this time that I didn't notice before because it's that continuation on of her story and her mind making this up to cope i agree i do think she made it to that that stairwell though i i just think that maybe she made it to that stairwell and again it's that idea of the metaphysics of like as and also right and also she imagined that she got there because the labyrinth helped her true you know true but But i was just like damn where's she gonna go now and then it had opened up and i was like oh maybe this is where she died that opens up the question and again this is all up to interpretation and can be part of the end also um when vidal does get to her she is arguing with the fawn and vidal cannot see the fawn you know and one could argue that's because the fawn's not real but one could also argue that that's because vidal doesn't get to tap into magic he doesn't 
Well, he's also immortal because remember they want to prove that she's not immortal. Yeah, yeah. the The idea of the challenge is yeah. that um, she's not actually in that or supposed to be in that world. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So then, so Vidal shoots Ophelia, and then grabs his son, tries to walk out of the labyrinth, only to be met with all of the gorilla fighters with Mercedes and her brother in the middle, and. Damn it, do I love this, like, few seconds because it's so goddamn satisfying. Because he hands the baby over to Mercedes. And he tries to, like, straighten himself out, takes out his little goddamn watch. And he's just like, tell my son what time I died. And tell him that his father... And boom, Mercedes cuts him off. And she just goes, like, it's such a simple no. And it's just cutting, right? Because she's just like, no, he's not even going to know your name. You didn't give a shit about this child as a human being, as an individual. Mm-hmm. All you cared about was passing down the legacy of your name. And we're going to prevent that from happening. And never once did it cross this asshole's mind that somebody might say that to him. Yeah. Because yet again, that's the entitlement he thinks he has. Mm-hmm. That's the power he thinks he has that everybody is going to listen to him mm-hmm. and obey him. Mm-hmm. Never once did he think, hey, I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> when I yeah. die, are the people that kill me going to tell this to my son? Yeah. No. And this is the crescendo of the third act in which what he is forced to watch is... Captain Vidal is forced to watch all of his authority and all of the power that he thought he had entirely fade away. And it starts with Dr. Ferrero when he goes in and he um, injects enough painkillers to kill the man this, the, the man who stutters so that Vidal can't torture him for information anymore. And Vidal literally says to him, like, just dead serious, he says... I don't understand why you didn't obey me. Like, this man is so entrenched in his ideology, he can't understand why someone who he sees as quote-unquote lesser wouldn't obey him. So he's got that. And then he watches and he finds out that Mercedes is betraying him, right? And he says to uh, he says to Mercedes, you must think I'm a monster, all of these things, but he still literally cannot understand why Mercedes betrayed him. Because mm-hmm. he says, I could have given you all of these things had yeah. you asked. Yeah. Doesn't understand that, like, this is her moral cause. Mm-hmm. And then lastly is the betrayal by Ophelia, right? And when he's pissed and he's holding on to Ophelia in her room, he says to her, how long have you been laughing at me? What he's most upset about is the fact that his power and his authority that comes from that, like, super fragile machismo violence is totally dissipating and we see that you know physically in the setting with the gorillas attacking the encampment killing his generals blowing shit up and all of that um and then just the final straw is just his son won't even carry on his name and won't even know who he was and then boom shot through the face shot through the cheek shot through the other cheek yeah yeah (laughs) and dropped to the floor and he is forgotten done Mm-hmm. piece of shit mm-hmm. yeah so there was a quote that came to my mind um as we were talking about and thinking about this film um and it's from one of my favorite thinkers antonio gramsci 
who is an Italian Marxist, who is also an anti-fascist. Uh, and the quote is, and I think it's super telling for our times right now, you know, we're recording this in July of 2020, um, that the old world is dying and the new world is struggling to be born. Now is the time of monsters. And I think it means so many different things. And it goes to that and also idea that, you know, the monsters can save us. The ghosts can bring us to justice. The fawns can bring us to our kingdom in this utopia. But the monsters are also the Vidals of the world, the Jacintos of the world. The monsters are around in these times. Um, and I think especially right now when we're seeing such fucking horrid violence, whether it's overt violence from the police um, and, you know, it's 2020 and we're still talking about the fact that a man was lynched in California or whether it's kind of like the more subtle violence of leaders literally throwing people and people's lives out by ignoring the pandemic that's around us. Um, I think right now we too are, are in the time of monsters in many ways. So del Toro. And, and I think we've, we've spent two hours literally gushing <laughs> about this man. And there are many more hours that we could gush. That's the funny thing. <laughs> and if you've made it through this, two-hour podcast of us talking about two of his movies and you have yet to see any of his movies <laughs> please watch something from mm -hmm. this man <laughs> like mm -hmm. they're just amazing yeah they're just amazing his movies will always be my favorites yeah yeah it's it's it holds a special place it really mm -hmm. does uh and if you don't think that these films are horror. I really challenge you to go back and watch them. If you haven't watched them, then what the fuck are you talking about? Um, but if you have and you're like, oh, I'm not sure this is horror, I really challenge you to watch them and watch them with like a kind of younger eye, maybe like a child's eye, and see how this can still be horror. I think for a lot of us who are fans of horror, we're so desensitized in a way, and we're always looking for more and more and, and perhaps like pushing what scares us. That it's one of the reasons why I love Del Toro is he always reminds me of what I would have been afraid of as a kid, right? Like, if I had seen Pan's Labyrinth as a child, I would have been scared. If I had seen Devil's Backbone as a child, I would have been scared. If the fawn would have walked into my room, <laughs> I would have shit myself. Like, it was it, he would not be one where, like, oh, hey, how you doing? <laughs> like, no, if it would have scared me. If the fawn walked into your room and took his prosthetic head off and it was just doug jones offering you a hug huh? can he take the suit off as well <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we got for you guys this time around um we'll have this episode up soon and we'll before you know it be working on the next one we still love 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 to hear from you all um, we've been getting some really really great feedback on the podcast so far but we want to know what you want us to talk about things that we said that were interesting and also you know what your point of view on some of the things that we've brought up is yeah we really appreciate appreciate you guys listening to it you know giving us feedback let all your friends know you know give us a like give us a follow mm -hmm. mention us when you're talking to somebody yeah. um 
We really appreciate it. If you're listening on uh, Apple Podcasts, rate, review, um, subscribe. I know these are the things that like every podcast says to you at the beginning and the end, but seriously, guys, it helps a bunch. It helps a tremendous amount. Follow the Instagram. And if you enjoyed this, try and get the word out. This is Kevin. And this is Desiree. And it's definitely not the last you will be hearing of Del Toro. But we're going to be closing the lids on this episode of the Two Coffins to Speak podcast. Have a good night, guys. Take care of you.